Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, Chandras. It's Matt Young, your host for the Story Chandra podcast. This is a podcast where Brisbane people tell true but unbelievable stories from their life for your delight and amusement. This is recorded live at Backdock Arts in Fortitude Valley on the 10th of March, but as of right now, the live event is on hold because of COVID-19. This is only our fifth live event, and this is our second podcast. And let me tell you, there's times when you run an event that it just goes so remarkably beautifully, you just want to preserve the whole entire evening, and this is one of those great nights. So sit back and enjoy some stories based on the theme of creativity. Our first storyteller is Carly Quinn Skelton. Now, Carly is an award-winning actress, but sometimes when you're that good an actor and you take it into your personal life, things can get a little bit confusing. Enjoy Carly's story. Um, yeah, so hi, I'm Carly Skelton. Um, for a little while, anyway, I've recently separated from my husband, so I'm going to go back to my maiden name, uh, which is Quinn. So I'm going to be Carly Quinn. Ten bucks if you can guess my nickname in high school. <laughs> yeah, it was a dickhead. Um, no, it was Harley Quinn because sixteen-year-old girls like that rhymes. You're funny. I hated high school. Um, so yeah, no, separated from my husband, and I have gone through this phase in my life where once I, I end a relationship, I go through this period of change and create this new part of me. Hence, segue to this week's theme of creation. Um, <laughs> I'm not this time though, I've decided that, um, look I'm nearly 34, <laughs> if you don't like me that's a whole lot of you problem, not me problem. Um, <laughs> back when I was 22, uh, I ended a relationship with a wonderful guy and um, decided to go and see Brisbane. It's a nice way of saying oh. sleeping around essentially. Uh. Um, <laughs> 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 Um, went in and was having a chat with a guy, I completely forgot that I was in England. 
smoke. And uh, walked in, he's like, you're right. Go with it. And he was like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. We ended up talking for about five, ten minutes and he was like, yeah, no, I live around the corner and all of that. And luckily I used my right name. Um, about a week later, I went back and he was like, hey, Lancashire. And I was like, oh no, I forgot to tell this guy I was English. Uh, hey, you're right. And like this little voice in my brain was like, I don't know, no, just go, ah, oh, look, man, I've been drinking. I'm not actually English. Ah, funny, funny. No, no, no. I went, go with it. Go with it. Lean into it. Be English. <laughs> so we chatted again, and um, he was a nice guy. Uh, I went back another couple of days because, you know, I needed milk. It was my local convenience store. Um, and he had some mates uh, outside, and apparently this was a thing, and I didn't know it was a thing. Um, they would get upturned milk crates and sit outside the night owl until like 2 o'clock in the morning smoking, drinking soft drinks, no illegal activities, um, and just like taking a piss, having chats, all that kind of thing. And I joined in. But I had to join in, not Australian Carly, English Carly, because I'd set a precedent and I had to go with it. So I did. Um, I ended up becoming quite good friends with these people. <laughs> <laughs> we went go to social events together. I was friends with them on Facebook. It was a time. Luckily, the English Carly and the real Carly worlds never intertwined, which was like, whew, what a relief. But there were about 10 people that I would socialise with that to this day think that I would English. <laughs> yeah. So for, I was friends and I would chat to them for about 18 months or a year and a half. They thought I was English. And then I kind of moved, yeah, it was fucked. Um, but like, I had to come up with such a detailed backstory. Like, oh, where am I from, where am I from? Luckily, in my late teens, early 20s, I uh, dabbled in some English guys. So I had some, some lines of history, I had a backstory. I was from Lancashire, obviously. Um, uh, my mom and dad had come out about three years earlier. Um, dad got a transfer with work. And um, I went to school, all-girls all school, and I work here, and I do that, and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if I'm a really good actor or these people just fucking gullible, but they just like, oh, no, no, made it up. It was hilarious. Um, moved away and didn't really see them anymore until about two years later, when I was working at the casino, this guy walks in, and I was like, oh, it's a familiar face, but I know him. And he walked up, and I went, oh, how are you, how are you I'm like, yeah, yeah, really good, really good. He said, what happened to your accent? I'm like, oh, fuck. No, it's the guy from the night owl. Like, oh, I've just, uh, I've had to phase it out because, you know, like, working, you know, there's too many, oh. And so I was like, yeah, you're right. And just straight back into it. What an idiot. So, yeah, for a year and a half, I convinced 10 people that I was English. Yay! I was once hired for a job also with an English accent, and proceeded to complete the entire filming in that English accent, even though people worked out very quickly that I was American. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Wellborn. He's an indigenous Nagarabal man who is an artist and has been a musician in the past, and this is all about how he created Wellborn and a story of his identity. Enjoy. Hello. Okay. Well, this is a uh, interesting experience. How you going, everybody? I am uh, Wobon, um, Story Chamber. I want to thank you for this project. Actually, this is actually very original. Um, I want to make sure that that's been made clear. Um, I can't honestly say that I've ever done anything like this, which is probably the reason why I actually wanted to do this. Um, just 
standing at a microphone and talking, I think is a, quite a stimulating experience. Um, story, creation. Uh, I guess I could probably talk about how I became global, because essentially that's a perfect way to uh, talk about the concept of creation, because essentially the symbol of Wellborn, which is my name in Celtic, which is my uh, indigenous side for my father, um, it's actually my name, uh, means young warrior. So I've always been in the arts, I think, realistically I've been in it since I was probably about 14. Um, not in a professional sense, not in a structured sense, just in a, um, uh, an intoxicated sense. Um, I look at creation as essentially coming to terms with your identity as an individual, really. Um, I truly believe that the, the word creation is the word given to simplify a complex collection of actions that we can't really explain. Um, so we just created a word to simplify such a complex subject matter. Um, I started calling myself Wellborn about a year and a half ago, and the reason I called myself Wellborn was because I wanted to remove myself from everything that once created myself, which is Alma. Now, I used to be a musician, and I was a musician for about eight years professionally. Um, it was a strong roller coaster that uh, took me all over the place, all over the country, all over the world. Um, it gave me connections that I never anticipated I'd probably ever get. Um, it taught me a lot about myself. It taught me that I had absolutely no idea who I actually was. It taught me that I was completely removed from myself, and it taught me that I was willing to die to achieve some form of stimulation. My opening up of that realisation would probably be when I was over in Scandinavia, um, putting myself in situations on the streets purely for the simple fact that I was completely removed from any concept of reality. Uh, once I did something along those lines, I came back and I realised that something was really missing in my world. The thing that I think was missing from my world was my connection to culture. I am a Maribor man, which is in the introduction to my art blurb, I guess you call it, at the start of the page. Because you've got to write something, otherwise I won't put you in the exhibitions. Am I right, Mika? Or what? Me, man. Describe yourself. Oh, you tell me. You're the one making my work. Um, but I uh, use that because I'm called Wellborn because that name came to me. But um, if I'd gotten my indigenous name, I'd be calling myself that. But I haven't got that, because I haven't been back to country since I was a kid. Um, because my world was completely removed from culture. I completely forgot I was even a Koori. And Koori is what you call someone from the southern part of Australia, it's Aboriginal. And a Murray is what you call a northern part of Australia. So that's why you're here in Queensland, they're called Murrays. And in New South Wales and Victoria, they're called Koori's. So, I never really acknowledged or identified as an Aboriginal, ever, ever, when I was in New South Wales in the music scene. I was a performer for eight years, killing it too. And that kids, just, it was, it was a whole other world. I was intoxicated by it. But at no point did I ever actually inject any of my culture into the situation, and therefore I was intoxicated by it, and I was always fucked off my head, and I was always just, I was, I was living that classic life that you would identify with a, with a rock star environment. Uh, because it's just, I said to do something. 
Um, once I moved to Queensland, all of a sudden culture started becoming a really big thing for me. I just was exposed to Aboriginal people on a more regular basis, something that I wasn't in my current life in New South Wales. And I realised that what was missing was my Aboriginal culture and the connection that I had to it. So I started to look into that. And I was really, really spiralling. I was spiralling hard because of what I was learning. I was learning about being from the stolen generation. I was learning about slavery. Um, my mother's side, her mother was... Her, her great-great-grandma was a slave. Um, her father, his grandma, was from the Stolen Generation. Stolen, Torres Strait Islander, which is also the indigenous of Australia, stolen from their family when the fathers were overseas fighting the war to defend the country. And then when they come, this happened all over the country. This is, this is how it happened. And this happened all the way up into the 70s. They just have changed the way they do it now. Now it's not called the stolen generation, it's called the incarcerated generation. They're doing the exact same thing. Because you see, when a child goes to court in Kuri culture, the grandma goes, because the elders are the ones that teach the family. The mother or the father doesn't go to court with the child. The grandparents do, that's, that's tradition, that's how you do it. And as soon as a kid goes to court without their parents, a social worker is obligated to take note. And they automatically assume the parents are abandoning their children. And they take the fucking kids. And that's been happening right up until today. That still happens right now. That's, that's happening right now. I know of kids who are in part of foundations to help with Big Brother concept, who are in this exact situation. We're from the northern land, north, up near the Cape. You know? And they're down here in a foreign land because they were arrested for some fucking stupid little misbehavioural bond thing. And now they're stuck down here in the city. So anyway, I learned about all this stuff. And it broke me hard. And I had to try and figure out what to do to change it. So I started to spew on a canvas. That's what I describe it as. I don't call it creating, I call it spewing. Purging. I started spewing on a canvas. Gory things, spiders, torment, torture, pain, sadness. And then I realised there needed to be something else to me besides this. So I started to think about a year and a half ago, which is why the professional thing only started a year and a half ago, I decided to actually acknowledge myself as a creator. And I started to realise that the concept of creation, the reason I'd been struggling for so long was because I was afraid. And I think the one element that stops people from being creative is fear. Fear is the number one enemy of every individual in this room. And I think that the, the word creative is just another word for courage. And it was courage that I acknowledged, and that's why I call myself Wellborn, even though my actual name is Owen, is because I'm confident that what I create will speak for itself. Wow, well, I found that story to be incredibly humbling. Uh, as someone who has Polish ancestry and has moved countries several times. I'm always searching for my identity too, so thanks Wellborn for you know bringing that home for us. Next storyteller is Beck Grenin Japovich. And now Beck is a copywriter, a voice actor, a musical theater performer, and when she heard the theme creation, she knew exactly the story she wanted to tell. The story of the birth of her first child. So um, I started planning my ideal birth, my ideal birth when I was about five months pregnant with my 
now five-year-old son, Luca. Um, Marco, my husband and I, went to a birthing weekend uh, to learn all about calm birthing. So we were learning about concepts like uh, your contractions were sensations and um, you had to ride the waves of um, intensity, things like that. So the teacher informed us that um, I could have this orgasmic, peaceful, pain-free birth. And <laughs> after two days of this, I was convinced that I was going to have an Oscar-worthy birth. <laughs> I walked out of the, the weekend clutching a USB stick with um, meditations, relaxation meditations, and I followed those meditations every night. I was a really good student. <laughs> Fast forward, getting around closer to when I was well, my son's due date, um, I started to get really restless, just staying inside the apartment, um, knowing that this is going to happen sometimes. And I started to have these phantom contractions or sensations. And But I was up for an adventure this one day, and I said to my husband, Marco, we're going to go on a, a trip up to Bribey Island. We're going to go and see my grandparents. We're going to do that the last time before we started. So, we did that, and fast forward, 8.30pm, uh, November, the, November the 6th, we just settled down uh, to watch some television with my grandparents, when I felt a really sharp pain in my uterus. And I thought, that's funny, okay, if it happens again, I'll stand up and walk around and move, move through it. So it did happen again, and I got up, and flicked off the doilies off my grandparents' floral couch and made my way into their kitchen where a big gush of water came from my body and onto the kitchen floor. So calmly and with control, I said to my grandfather, Bo, get the car ready. It's time, I'm in labour, let's go. And, and I raced to where my husband Marco was asleep and I woke him up saying that, you know, it's go time. So, the next moment I scooped my grandma into our car and she had Alzheimer's so she was kind of like, what is going on? And, you know, I popped her in the, in the back and popped my meditations on and in the meantime I noticed that she was struggling so I, I mothered her and got her into the seat. So, we were following my grandpa on the way to the nearest hospital, which was Caboolture Hospital. Yeah, Caboolture Hospital. So this was not in my plan at all. Uh, when we arrived at Caboolture Hospital, I, I walked up to the emergency department and, and passed like, the seamless and the thongs and the studies, and I was like, I think I'm having a baby. And there was no wheelchair, they were just like, I'm just up, up two flights. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I arrived at, at the birthing suites in Kabulja Hospital and a nurse took me into this sterile room and laid me on this couch and there was like dentist lights on top of me and a mural of Australian wildlife animals on the wall. It was it's completely not for me. What was in my plan? <laughs> so um, it was around this time that I started to remember like the signs that were telling shouldn't be where I was that day, like the tyre that was flat on the way to Bradley 
But I was determined to still have that perfect bird. So she said to me, you can have the bird here, or if you want, you can risk going to the Gold Coast Hospital where you want to have your water birth. And at this time, like my rational mind had just shut down. I was going to this like deep, primal part of me where it was only the present moment that was all that I could find. And so thankfully, Marco, my husband, stood up and went, yeah, we'll go, we'll risk it. So he must have instinctively known that that's what I wanted or um, he was scared of the repercussions. <laughs> so we said, see you later to my grandparents and it was like midnight, so they're you know, heading on home going, what the heck's happening? And we took an hour and a half drive along the Pacific Highway in the pouring rain in the middle of the night to get to this hospital that I really wanted to birth at. And the contractions were becoming more intense, like every 45 seconds the pain was building up, building up. And I was just marking time by seeing the landmarks go past until finally we got to the exit of the Gold Coast Hospital after there was some road work. So I was like, Marco, you've got to get out and tell them that I'm having a baby. Okay. So they didn't need to do that. But we got to the hospital and by that time I was just exhausted and got into the waiting room and collapsed on the floor with exhaustion. So I finally got into one of the beautiful birthing rooms and there was the birthing pool, the salt lamp, the lavender wafting underneath my nose, the massages and the showers and and I was able to labour there for four hours, which was really, really, really beautiful. And it was in that time that I started to realise, or I started to like lose my identity, like what you were saying. I was not attached to any version of myself. I was just in this really deep primal space of connecting to all the women who had birthed before. I just felt like this huge warrior woman. And it was about 4.45 when I placed my son onto my chest. And I was really, really humbled at that stage because I realized that no matter how much I tried to control this perfect birthing plan, there was something driving it that had its own time, it had its own feel. And I realized that you can hold tightly to the things that you want to see happen, the, the way it would happen, or you can give it up to the universe and know that you've done your best. So I may not have had my Oscar-worthy birthing, but it was pretty close, and it was pretty lovely. Struggles, animal murals, and all. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Beck. Wow, Mother Nature certainly has her plans for us, whether we like it or not. And I'm pleased to hear that things worked out the way that you wanted them to. Next up is Micah Rusticelli, who is also a visual artist and wanted to tell us a bit about his creative process and the rules of thermodynamics. Um, I'm not a comedian or a verbal storyteller normally. Um, I do prefer to paint. Um, as an artist, I have a very serious and broody persona to keep up. So, uh, excuse the lack of humour that you might be getting from me tonight. Um, as an artist, the most common question that I'm asked is, where do your ideas come from? And there is no simple answer to this question. 
I wish it was as simple as seeing a blank canvas and recreating whatever was in my head, um, but that is not the case. The closest thing that I can provide to an answer is the first law of thermodynamics, that energy can neither be created nor destroyed, only transferred. I have always been a very, very sensitive person, uh, most would say too sensitive. I see the world through a very saturated lens. Things are quite intense and magnified to me. Um, common social rituals seem very absurd. Day-to-day -day tasks are these monumental moments and on any given day, I experience the whole spectrum of emotion multiple times over. Um, it feels a bit like a constant state of entropy. I have all of this energy that I cannot funnel into productive work. And it's at these moments of maximum entropy that I found myself at my most creative. And the biggest point of this was about four years ago. I had just moved out of home, um, rarely ever paying my rent. If I did pay my rent, I'm not allowed to tell you the things I did to pay my rent. <laughs> I had um, dropped out of university, um, I ate nothing but cheese toasties and coffee for three months, uh, and I was indulging heavily in some dangerous activity, all of this in an effort to feel anything but the intense energy around me. Um, and it's interesting coming after Wellborn story of this living, this lifestyle where I wanted nothing more than to feel nothing. Mm. And I went on these journeys and involved myself in these stupid activities that I didn't even enjoy for the express purpose of shutting that intense feeling down. Mm. Surprise, surprise, didn't work. <laughs> um, turns out the more chaotic activities you involve yourself with, the more chaotic your life becomes. <laughs> well, hey, look. Call 20-year-old me and tell him that because he had no idea. Um, until I reached a breaking point and I picked up a paintbrush for the first time in about two years. And like an emotional floodgate, this energy just came pouring out and I kept going and going and going and going. And I almost have not stopped since. But in that time of feeling nothing, I had made myself an isolated system. I had removed myself so far from the reality of the things I was feeling. And the second law of thermodynamics is that in an isolated system, entropy can only ever increase. And so while I found this new way to transfer this energy, to put it to a productive place, I was not remaining aware of the emotional transactions that I was consistently making to create work. And I was ignoring the fact that transferring energy between creator and creation goes both ways. And I kept going disconnected from what I was feeling, but still trying to portray it in a way I could understand until one day there was no energy left and I had nothing left to make. And all I had to show for it was these works 
that were spewing this emotional floodgate back onto me in a language that I still could not understand. And looking at them, I was just recycling the same energy of traumas that were now almost a decade old. And for all my efforts, I was still feeling nothing and I had fooled myself into thinking that I was creating something from nothing, ignoring where my ideas were coming from. And once I made this realisation, I learned that rather than transfer our energy as artists, we have to learn to transform it. Take our ideas out of the abstract and redistribute them in a way that we can understand, but more importantly, in a way that we can share. Learning to become comfortable with sharing my work with others was the most important thing. Because it was the final missing piece in this puzzle of entropy that I was stuck in. I always say that when I display my works, they no longer belong to just me. A small part of them belongs to every person who sees them. Because they have not known the journey I've gone on to get where I am. They haven't seen where I've drawn inspiration. But they still connect with it. And they have their own energy attached to it. And when you display something like that, it can disguise itself as an act of creation from nothing. And for the viewer, that's what it is. And I have no place to interrupt that. And so when people ask me now where my ideas come from, I try not to answer in a concrete way. My, my art is an expression of me, and I am a self-fulfilling prophecy of it. Chicken or egg, who knows where it's going. But the important thing is how the viewer perceives it and what energy transfers to them. Because it is only then that I truly feel I've fulfilled this purpose and given the energy its productive course. If I can give that to someone and they take that and use it in their life to transfer somewhere else and continue the cycle. And at the end of the day, I guess that is really what creation means to me. It's not something from nothing. It's an endless cycle that we are all included in of energy transferring from state to state to state until finally it finds an equilibrium. My dream when I put together the story Chandra was to find artists from all sorts of different disciplines and these visual artists never disappoint. And our final storyteller for the night is Kelly Mack, who is also our first interstate visitor to the story Chandra. Kelly is a comedian and also a screenwriter. And she's going to share something very special with you, something she has not read out loud since she composed it many years ago. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Matt. And Michael, well born, if this whole visual arts caper thing doesn't work out for you, stand up, microphone, storytelling. It's been quite incredible and a privilege to hear all of the stories tonight. And I'm gonna thank you all by finishing up with something quite trite. Very trite. Very, very trite. Genius can come from anywhere perhaps not right here, right now, but theoretically, as we've just heard, it can come from anywhere. And it is not necessarily true that idle hands and the devil's play things because when I created my one and only poem, my hands
place were indeed idle, but they were ready to be guided by the ghost of Willie Shakespeare, who I am convinced came down and nestled on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> the time, somewhere in the 90s, and that's as specific as we're going to get. I have no clue, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in the 90s. The place, a lecture hall at the University of Canberra, dull. <laughs> the subject of the lecture, property law, two hours of it. <laughs> My feelings about the subject, dim, I would add, agonising, God forsaken and with no end in sight. What was I doing during the lecture? Reading Rolling Stone magazine. <laughs> Now, I wasn't that much of an idiot or that rude that I was flagrantly reading Rolling Stone. I had created a little bunker made of my folders and my textbooks, of which there are many in property law, and for anyone looking at me, I looked like any other industrious student, uh, busily scribbling down the salient tenets of 400 years of English property law. But I was not. I was reading about a cataclysmic event. And I mean, this one was big. It had shaken the world, and not just the music world, the world, capital T, capital W. Rolling Stone informed me that a trunk had been found in an attic. Someone had opened the trunk. They had found pages of poetry inside. With a little research, it was uncovered that this was poetry written by one James Douglas Morrison. Fresh never before heard, never before read poetry from the Lizard King himself. <laughs> the music world spasmed, the literary world squirted, and the surviving members of the Doors beat the land speed record to get into the recording student and lay down some tracks. <laughs> now, when we come to these recordings, please do not think the genius of the end, or break on through, or riders on the storm, or any of the Doors tracks as you know it. Think some guy, and it would have been some guy because it was sexist as in those days, some guy in a studio strumming a guitar with another guy reciting a poem called Lament to My Cock. <laughs> now, I have read Lament to My Cock since, and I feel very differently about it now. It's actually a kick ass piece of prose. But back then, that type, Lament to My Cock, Lament to My it, 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 I, I, I couldn't quite believe it. And I was thinking, and I need to actually do a sidebar here and explain. I diverged somewhat when it came to Jim Morrison from my friends. They all saw a rebellious genius. They wanted to fuck. I saw proof positive that a bad drunk is a bad drunk. It is only with age and some personal experience that I've realised those two interpretations can exist simultaneously. <laughs> if not harmoniously, <laughs> and in Jim's case, sadly, not for long. <laughs> so, here we are, back in the property law lecture, I'm being bored witless, and I thought, if this dickhead can write this piece of shit called Lament to my cock, then surely, surely I can come up with something. And the muse heard me, <laughs> and sent angels down, and before the end of the lecture, I had it down. So without further ado, and for only the second time in public since that lecture, I present to you Ode to My Anus. Yay. <laughs> anus 
anus, how you stare, at cold ceramic rimmed with hair. <laughs> how I ponder upon your form, so pink and wrinkled, moist and warm. When I push, your lips do purse. When I fart, your mouth doth curse. When one does pull my cheeks apart, and ease inside a gleaming shaft. Then anus, anus, open wide. Perfect muscles hold back the tide of excrement you would eject upon that cock so sweetly erect. <laughs> Unless, of course, it's a prank named Jim. In that case, please, shit on him. <laughs> and there you have it, folks. The second episode of the Story Chunder. Thanks for your support. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, uh, follow us on Spotify, look at all of our socials at the Story Chunder. We've got a YouTube page, and we're going to work out over the next couple of days how we're going to continue this event. Uh, now that it can't be a live event, I think it will become a more traditional podcast at this point. We'll miss that element of the live audience, but we have to do what we have to do in these times. Thanks again. It's been Matt Young, and have a great night. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.